The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. All right, our scripture reading today is from Ecclesiastes 11, verses 1 through 6. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and in evening withhold not your hands, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Jimmy. Well, it's good to be able to be back and uh, speak to you this morning. I um, was at a conference this week called Q Conference. I don't know if you've heard of that before, but it's Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. And essentially, it's uh, a Christian-based conference that has both a Christian and people who may not be Christian speak at it about major cultural topics. And they don't hold back. Uh, everything, uh, uh, even regarding um, things that have been going on in our country over the last year, uh, Me Too movement, uh, Charlottesville, uh, all these speakers, and then talking about other uh, crises that are going on. It's really interesting. In some sense, it's, it's much like uh, sitting in on uh, multiple TED Talks. And uh, if you can imagine hearing maybe six speakers in a row, they actually have a clock up there, and it's timed. It's, it's fascinating, really cool. There are a couple of those, though, where I was sitting and I'm listening and uh, just different ones. There's a guy, and I'll tell you more about in a minute, but he, uh, he's building homes that are um, affordable housing and people that are in these different uh, neighborhoods and areas all around the country and even world that are addressing major issues. And you, know, you have, I had a couple of those moments where I'm sitting there listening and I'm going, what am I doing with my life? You know, you just kind of, you ever had those moments where you're sitting and you're listening to somebody and, and, and what they're saying sounds so profound and, and so meaningful and you kind of go, am, am, is what I'm doing meaningful? <laughs> I remember even sitting as a campus minister with a student who, who, uh, who was a, a freshman uh, in, in college and he had begun a pearl company that he would travel to Asia and get pearls and by selling pearls in the United States, he'd go back and then open uh, clean water reservoirs for people in different countries. This guy's in like a freshman in college. I'm sitting there across from him going, now why do I need to sit with you? Um, you know those moments, those moments where you're reading a book, you're hearing a podcast, you're, you're, you're listening to somebody and you think, what, how am I investing my life? You know, we're about to have all those commencement speeches. You know, this is that time of year where, where everybody is, uh, whether it's in high school or college, and they're about to graduate, <clears throat> and they have, you know, hire some great speaker to stand up and rouse the, the crowd to say, you're going to make something of yourself, you know, do something. Uh, and I, what I thought was one of the best speeches I've ever read or, uh, and, and heard snippets from was by J.K. Rowling. Many years ago, she gave a commencement speech at Harvard, and her speech title was The Benefits of Failure. 
And I thought, of all things to, to, to get, do a commencement speech at, at Harvard, where success is bred, where, where it's like, go out and win and change the world. Instead, it's go out and fail. And uh, just like one of my favorite writers, David Brooks, says, it's often that in those speeches and in those places where we think we want to invest ourselves and make something of ourselves, that we make it all about us. It's all about me. Don't we want that? Don't we want to feel like we have a purpose? You know, that our plans are doing something, that we're being intentional, that, that you're not just feeling guilty like you should be doing something else or trying to be admi- admiring somebody, you know, investing their life. You want to be the one. I want to be the one that, that, that feels like we're actually making a difference, that our plans are coming to fruition, that we have these things that make a huge impact. And, and, and here's what's interesting about this book of Ecclesiastes. <clears throat> it brings the realism. And many, many people have said this is one of the most dangerous books of the Bible. And they re, the, real, the reason they say that is because it can leave the readers oftentimes with a sense of not necessarily despair, but just kind of a, a, a breath of almost, this is how it is. And instead of just getting you kind of worked up and exciting you to go do work, it kind of says, here's what it's like to live in the reality of where you are. <clears throat> and somewhat opposite of some of the great commencement speeches, it really is like, let's go ahead and fail and plan and live in that. That's actually a lot what this passage is about. It's a part, two parts in this passage that are kind of drawn out that's really interesting theme throughout the Old Testament in particular and the scriptures, but about planning and peace, how, how we plan for things that we can't, we know about and how we have peace in things that we don't. Because the two things that run through this are that. It's how do you plan? How do you plan and invest? How do you put things into things? And how do you plan for things that you can, you can actually know about? You have somewhat intelligent thought about competency. But also, what about the, the many things in this that it says you don't know? You don't know about disaster. You don't, how do you have peace in the things you don't know? So as he talks about this, he even begins with this odd phrase that many commentators talk about but in terms of planning and investing in verse, 11, in verse 1. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you'll find it after many days. And then later on, right after that, he goes down if the cloud, in verse 3, if the clouds are full of rain. He starts talking about both these metaphors that are really interesting one is kind of a nautical metaphor. The other one is an agricultural metaphor. And if you think about that, the metaphors that are being used, the, the descriptions of, of using ships like trade ships, cast your bread upon the waters, give a portion of seven or eight, disaster. It's talking about going out. And, and, and there are passages where actually Solomon, who many people thought wrote this, sends ships out in First Kings. He sends ships out and he brings back apes and peacocks and gold and all this stuff. All these things. But he thinks he's referring to that. And if you think about being on a ship and then also being a farmer, which was predominant in those days, they're both metaphors that make you go, you know what, we can do as much as we can, but we don't have control whether the crops will grow or what's going to happen with the water. We can harness the wind, we can do as much as we can, and we can plant and do all those things, but who gives growth? Who actually brings the wind? Who is the master of the sea. It's hard because we can only plan for what we know. 
You know, the beginning here is when it says casting bread upon the water, it's, it's talked about broadly doing this. And it's, it's odd, it's an odd phrase. In fact, many commentators don't even know what the translation would be. Some think it means uh, trade commerce. Uh, some think it means uh, distributing to the poor. But I think ultimately the common thread though is how are you investing? How are you giving broadly? And how are you giving back? And, and, and here's what's interesting about using the nautical, the, the, the sailing metaphor. If you do a, a, a study, a word study of the word guidance in the Old Testament, particularly in the wisdom books like Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, and those, it's, it's nautical. It's actually a nautical word. The word guidance, the thing that we want, guidance to make our lives better, God's will, you know, how do you make sense, purpose? They're nautical words. It actually is the language and usage of pulleys and levers that people use on ships. That's where the word guidance comes from. I remember when I was, uh, I used to, we go to the beach every year and I love it. And there's a, there's actually a company down there that you can, you know, I'm sure you've seen this if you've been down there. They actually sit, uh, rent out boats and, and uh, paddle boards and all that. Well, I knew, I know one of the guys that owns it and for my birthday one year, uh, he was real kind. He was like, oh, yeah, you can go out and just take one of the boats. And I love sailing. I think it's fun. And, uh, but on this particular day, my father-in-law, who is from a farm town in Ohio and doesn't even know how to swim, he, will not, he doesn't even like to get in the water, but up to his knees, said, I'll go with you. It'd be fun. You know? And, and, and uh, Meg and my wife came with me. Well, this day was one of the worst. No one was sailing. And for a reason. This is one reason he gave me the boat to take it out. The breakers were huge. And so here I am trying to push the boat out. I'm the one that's supposed to work this right. And I'm pushing the boat out and he's on it, literally holding. And I am flailing on the back. And this little catamaran is just whapping the water. And I'm flailing. And then of course, you know, we get into a little marital spat because I'm like, you gotta pull the lever. You gotta move the lever. You know, Megan's on the boat saying, what if we do this? And I'm hanging on the back while my father-in-law is saying, I have no faith in my son-in-law anymore. And all of a sudden, Megan grabs this rope and pulls and the sail catches and the boat steadies and I'm hanging on the back dragging as we are going finally smooth. And what was amazing about that, what's interesting is, is it is that. It is a harnessing. It, it, it is that language of when we are to plan, when we're making plans, when we're investing ourselves, we're putting ourselves into things. It is about that that whole, that whole picture of trying to pull the right levers, trying to do the right thing, and, and, and oftentimes feeling like a complete failure. And yet hanging on the boat and sometimes climbing up on top and feeling like we're at rest, but we're always at the mercy of what is in the sea. But we have to plan. It's still saying we have to cast our bread broadly. We're supposed to do that. But where do you do it and why? It also says... Give a portion to seven or eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. It's saying that we need to give it broadly. You know, putting our time and energy and resources to fight against darkness in this world. Look, it's saying don't put all your eggs in one basket. It's saying to us that we need to look broadly. We don't need, we can often be myopic in the way that we plan and schedule the way we want to make an impact, invest our life in this world. But there are so many places that need us in it. And oftentimes there's darkness that we don't even address, but it's right in front of us. You know, we do, we are connected to a group called NIFW, National Institute of Faith and Work. And they do what's called a Gotham 
uh, program. It's a program you go through for several months, very intense, and at the end of it, they have to do a project. And these are, uh, this is a group of how do you connect faith and work? And at the end, the project is in your work, in your sphere of influence, what, what is an area of darkness that you're going to create something that addresses that? One of those in particular I thought was interesting, I was told about was uh, in, in a specific uh, area of um, where this person saw uh, where certain laborers were working overtime and not getting paid for it. And when they were not being cared for in their labor, and this is somebody that, it's, it's a routine job. It's something that, that happens regularly. And, and they decided, hey, what if we created different avenues, different structures so that these people weren't overworked and paid directly the way they should be? And when this person brought this and began to implement it to the boss and to their structures, the boss looked at this, at this particular person and said, why are you doing this? Why do you care that these people are, are in this place or, or in that way? Why are you doing this? And he said, do you really want to know? You really want to hear? He was addressing a place of darkness. He was addressing an area of need. And, and, and that is what we need to think about is where are we applying the gospel? There, why are we thinking often of just one small place when there's so much darkness around us? I think what was fascinating about being at this Q conference to me, and it's the thing that's both overwhelming and helpful, is that there are so many places around us of need that we oftentimes just shut down and not even address it. There's so many places of darkness. Where do you see need and share it? Even if it seems culturally irrelevant, even if you get people saying, why are you doing this? What a great opportunity to say, here's why I'm doing it. (laughs) Does it matter? Is it real? Look, when we talk about these passages, and it's interesting, we can plan and have our investments and in how we do this. But, but what was fascinating when I was at the, um, this conference, and this is what I was alluding to earlier, I, I met a guy, I was sitting there listening to a guy named Brett, um, Brett Hagler, and he uh, was working with a firm that was creating what's called 3D home printing. Now, not printing home, like a printer in your home, but literally printing homes through giant machines. And this machine would build a house that was affordable housing for low income and also third world countries. Fascinating to watch. In fact, it was so incredible that this machine can build, and I asked him, I had to meet him afterwards because I was, I was totally blown away by what he was doing. That this machine, usually a typical home is built in 10 to 15 days. And they cost upwards about uh, $7,000. This machine can print a home in 12 to 24 hours and costs $3,500. There's a, there's a prototype of it in uh, Austin, Texas right now. They were showing it. And he actually, I had many questions for him, just like, what, is this thing last? Is it durable? And he was like, yeah, we actually are doing, a, we've done a lot of tests because of the way it's printed and everything else. But here's the thing that was most amazing to me about what he said. He said, you know what? We're doing this and we want to share it. Like this innovation is not just about me. We want to share, we want other companies, we want other people doing this because this isn't about me. It needs to be broadly sent all over the place. 
There need to be companies that are taking this up and doing that all over the place because we see darkness. We see the housing crisis in our world and especially in places where we're constantly asking, well, how do people who don't have money and, 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 and can't live in places that the, the prices are skyrocketing or edged to the margins, how do they consistently have housing? How do we address that darkness? Because it is there as much as we have that. Investing our life doesn't look like something that has to be huge. It's also just those small ways of looking in your, in your family, your job, around you, planning according to that. And oftentimes, how we plan is, is, is often um, a misnomer. It's interesting, even in this passage, when it talks about the countless agricultural metaphors here, because think about that, you know, talking of bread, it talks about if clouds are full of rain. He's talking about farmers looking. You know, he, in verse four, he who observes the wind will not sow. You know, it's trying to get us the idea of, look, in this time period, if you didn't farm, if you, didn't, if, if, you, if you ran out of certain kind of food, you couldn't just go back to the same restaurant again and they'll just find another resource. See, for us, we go to a place, if there's like a shortage of tomatoes or a shortage, every now and then you'll see at a restaurant a sign that says, you know, we're having a problem in this uh, country, this, this farming community won't have this. You know, but still we eat at that place and pretty much eat whatever we want because we're used to that. In this community, their dependence and planning on farming was enormous. If it didn't happen, it didn't happen. They had famine. And they had to figure out how they were going to eat. But they still had to plan. And it's interesting, the, the two ditches here of investing and planning that come out of this. One is, in verse 3, if the clouds are full of rain and empty themselves on the earth and a tree falls in the south or the north, and the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. Look, there's an overconfidence in planning. It, there's an overconfidence of saying, well, you know, disaster is going to come, but we have to plan. And oftentimes we do that in certain ways. You know, we, we'll plan in ways we feel led. The, the, the language that we often use is like having a peace or feeling led, right, towards something. But think about that for a second. How does God guide us in that? Do we just feel led? Now, it's not that emotions can't be a part of a decision, but in our culture, it is often used in our, especially in Christian lingo. And maybe if you're here this morning and, and you're, you're uh, coming back in through the doors of a church and you're hearing that you've heard this language that Christians use of having a peace and feeling led, what does that really mean? Because there are often times that you may not feel led and it may be the right decision. I, I, I had several encounters with people who have made major decisions, breakups, relationships based on the way that they simply felt led. And if you look in the Bible itself, you see one of the biggest things we just looked at, Holy Week last week. If, if Jesus at one of the most crucial moments going to the cross didn't feel a peace at all and yet went to the cross and took it up. He said, not my will, but thy will be done. Not coldly or callously, but looking beyond his own feeling led to do so or making adjustments. You know, it's interesting. You see even here, if the clouds are full of rain, you know, the tree falls, it's trying to calculate, right? It's basically, it's funny. It's saying, you see the clouds full of rain. Remember a couple weeks ago that on the radar, the storm of the century was coming through, right? Schools let out early. People go home from work. Everybody went home and we were like hanging out and it was like sun. It was like this. And people were going, well, that was a great day. 
You remember that a couple weeks ago? It's amazing. And people were like, that was some storm that came through. You know, we can plan all we want, and yet we don't know ultimately, right? We can make all the adjustments, and yet that may not be the way to do it. And also, having the right resources. Sometimes, you know, we all have so many resources. We can depend on our resources more than anything. And then more than God himself, more than what we really need to. And here's the interesting thing. The other ditch isn't just the way we plan, it's the way we don't. It's the laziness. This is a huge, wild theme throughout uh, the wisdom literature. In verse four, he who observes the wind will not sow and he who regards the clouds will not reap. It means do not be inactive. It's somebody who instead of actually doing the business of farming, imagine is just watching the weather the whole time. Wondering what's going to happen. Never actually planting the seeds in the ground. And why is that lazy? It's, here's the form of laziness. It means our busyness in our planning and, and working overtime to do our planning can be one of the greatest forms of laziness. Because we can be not doing the things that we should be. Ineffective. Proverbs actually uses a couple metaphors. One metaphor is, is like a bow that's supposed to be shot. And, 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 and instead of, of the, 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 um, the thread being tight and taut, it's slack. And so when you fire the arrow, it's inactive. It doesn't pull back correctly. That the work of a lazy person can be inactive because it's slack. The other one is even of a lion, someone of fear of making decisions. There's a lion out there. There's a lion out there. That's what Proverbs says. But our laziness, here's the amazing thing, is that so much of us work our tails off and may not be working correctly at all. We can avoid the reality of where we should be by our laziness and even our planning. Doesn't it feel that way to you? Don't you feel oftentimes like you're just trying to come up for air? And yet you think, what am I doing with my life? Could it be that we're avoiding the things and the one who actually can make sense of our planning? That's the part of this about peace that's amazing is what we don't know. Have you noticed over and over in Ecclesiastes, if you listen to our, if you go back and read this book, for many of you here, Ecclesiastes is a part of wisdom literature. And one of the things that's amazing about this book is how much the author says we don't know. You know, we plan for what we do, but we, we, we have, do we have a piece about what we don't? It's incredible here how many times, even just these six verses, it's three times, it's just the problems that we face and he, we, yet we don't know. We can plan as much as we want to. In verse two and six, it says, give in, having a peace in disaster and prosperity. Give a portion to seven or eight, for you do not know what disaster may happen on earth. It's not an if, it's a when. And even at the end, in the morning, sow your seed, and at evening, withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper. It's not an if, it's a win. There's both disaster and prosperity that comes. And how do we have a peace in that? It's not about inactivity. See, here's the interesting thing about having a peace in planning. It's about settling in. It's the fact that you and I often plan and put our peace in our plans more than God. It's a simple thing. It is incredible to me, the more I read the Old Testament, to remind myself how much the people of God did not 
know what was going on and rest in it. It's not that they didn't have struggle. You know, we sang that song about worry, you know. We will have worry, but it's moving your eyes past that. It's, it's seeing past that, all the things. Look, here's the thing. Carrie Underwood said it well, right? Jesus, take the wheel, right? Here's the interesting thing about that. It, peace isn't so much of you going, hey, Jesus, take the wheel. It's knowing that he's had it all the time. See, we put so much into that. Our productivity, if, here's the thing. It's the thing, if we prosper, we feel like we should have peace. And if there's disaster, here's the question. If your plans and investments fail, is it disappointing or is it devastating? Because if it is devastating to you, all the, and I'm not talking about like your schedule, right? And here's what's fascinating. We all have a schedule for tomorrow. Tomorrow's Monday. We all know what we're doing. We actually don't. You realize that you have your schedule. I mean, if you look at mine, people always make fun of mine and they say, oh, look at all the color-coded things on your schedule. No, 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 no. You know, it makes me feel like I'm, I'm, I'm important, right? Yeah. But here's the crazy thing. I actually don't know what's gonna happen. We are finite beings. And what's amazing about this passage is trying to drive you and I back to stop depending on your productivity and your dreams to make you feel as though you have a peace. We look to God to make our plans established so that we can care about our plans more than him. But isn't it incredible when you actually go through something hard that takes out your dreams? Now, and and that's what I mean is not just, look, not just the things in your schedule on a Monday. I mean the dreams, the two or three things that your whole life revolves around. Maybe you have planned since you have been young to have a wife and a family and kid, the perfect picturesque thing. And for some reason, your plans are not coming through. You find yourself single later in your life. You find yourself without children. Maybe you find yourself graduating without a job. Maybe you find yourself here, you've been at a certain age, you've been in a job and you just lost it and you don't know what you're gonna do next. Maybe you're estranged, maybe you are estranged in a relationship that you never thought you would be and it has caused more deep pain. What about all those things? You can't plan for that. What do we do with the disaster and prosperity? We trust in his guidance. Look, it's looking to him to be your dreams and plan and center, not your dreams and plans. I know that some of you are thinking, well, how is he better? Think about this with me. I remember growing up when I was, uh, my parents divorced when I was young. And I remember when I was in high school, sports were a really huge thing for me. And this specific individual, his name was Coach Sutterfield. Uh, and Coach Sutterfield um, was my track coach. And I remember when Coach Sutterfield and I would finish uh, a track workout, because that would end up being my sport even in college and, and uh, enjoyed that. It, but I remember we would, everyone would leave and we would be out on the track still and he would turn on his headlights and I would still throw a few discus and I'd still be out there and help him pack up. And I, I never thought about it then because I thought, man, he's just, he's just a great coach. He just cares. He's gonna help. But you know what he was really doing? He didn't really care if I was gonna win him a state championship. He, he really didn't. You know what I realized? 
that he knew what was going on in my life. He knew the turmoil of my family. And he turned his headlights on and he stayed out there and he worked through it with me and even was gonna be a groomsman in my wedding. And the reason why is because he cared about me more than the plans. It wasn't that I was gonna bring him a championship, it was that he cared for me. And if it worked, great. We worked our tails off. He helped me even go into college and enjoy doing sports in college. But, and you have some, and isn't it in that moment when you, when you have someone, when you're saying, we gotta work through this together. Maybe it's in a marriage, maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's in something like that, where at the moment where you're saying, we've gotta work through this incredibly difficult, we're gonna work through this together, but whether it fails or whether it succeeds, you look at that person and you go, you know what? We did it together. They're with you. That is the feeling, that is why God's guidance is different. He doesn't care as much about your investment. He cares about you because you are his. His blood is deposited not for what you can do and the plans that you've made, but for who you are. That's what makes your plans awesome. That's what makes you, what you invest in important and valuable. It isn't because you've done them. It's because of your his. And he has taken the time, even when you don't know it, to stand out in the dark with the headlights on and to propel you even beyond because he cares about you. You know, this passage ends in a really interesting way. There's a verse here that's very powerful and I may start crying, so it's okay. Verse five says this. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with a child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. If there's one thing that we have tried in this world, it's to try and make sense of how we are formed. And I had a couple call me not too long ago, and they don't go to this church, but they know that our story is one of adoption. We have two boys, beautiful boys, both adopted. And they were asking me, how did you go through that process of filling out all these forms and all these things that ask you questions about what kind of a parent you'll be and what kind of child you want. And I said, you know what? It's the illusion of control. No matter whether you have a form that you're checking boxes or the baby comes from your womb, it's an illusion of control. Because who forms that child? You know, one of the greatest quotes I've heard about this was from Scotty Smith who said this. He said, we are all pregnant with glory and there is no chance of miscarriage. No chance. You come to this table. This table has been set by one who has given the investment. It's been paid down. All you have to do is take it, go, and spread it. Spread it abroad. 
The Savior himself has been broken and spread to us so that we might take it and spread it on the waters. That we may take this truth, this glorious truth that he has given. Because, look, you need to understand the plans that God has made through this, when you taste that bread and that juice, you are pregnant with glory and there is no chance of failure or miscarriage. This is the plan for me. Let's stand together.